0: Recording in progress. Ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to High Holiday Boot Camp and Torah Studies. It's a hybrid. It's a, it's a miracle. How can we pull off both at the same exact time? I don't know, but only we can pull that off. So here's the deal. I spent multiple hours today building a sukkah. You know why? Because tomorrow night, the holiday of Sukkot is starting. So I've been building. I'm just, gonna, I'm just sharing my life with you guys because I feel, I feel like is it's a safe TV space. If you DVR, Okay, so funny you, me- funny you mentioned that, okay? Funny you mentioned that because my Steelers did not, were not victorious. In fact... They needed to have heard your Kabbalah and coffee class this morning, and maybe one of your key players wouldn't have gotten tossed. Yes. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I don't know who got the... Oh, this. so this I don't know. Interesting. Oh, Interesting. yeah. Oh, all right. Now, now I'm going to look up some more details. I just saw the final score, mm-hmm. but I know they did lose to the Vegas, at this point, Vegas Raiders. So, drawer Mazel Tov to you guys, to you and Fran and crew, hey, in Vegas, but we got, uh, we as in Pittsburgh. But, so here's the deal. I bought my sukkah today, and I've been for the last, I don't know, five years maybe? Five years? I've been building a sukkah out of wood. And it's a complicated sukkah. It's not like one of these proof-fab sukkahs. It's a sukkah that I bought online, and it's like, yeah, you know, sort of a DIY. They give you like the information and whatever, but you buy, you get certain pieces, and then you put it together. But it should be so super, super easy. I get this sukkah. I'm not joking. It's like it's hilarious. I get this sukkah. It arrives. Like I've been talking about it to my wife, Leah, and she's like, "This again, five years ago." And it arrives, and it's like this tiny box. I'm like, "Our sukkah arrived." She's like, "Yeah, that ain't a sukkah. That that is not a sukkah. It's got like instructions, you know, a bag of screws." And a few, a few like, um, I don't know what you call them, like... Brackets. Bra- thank you, thank you for the word brackets, because that's how handy I am that I can't even come up with the word brackets. That's literally how handy I am that brackets escapes you me. live near the Home Depot? I, by the way, in the last 24 hours, I'm not joking, one, two, three, four times, and the last, yes, this is not a joke. This is not a drill. Although they did have drills there. This is not a joke. Four times in the last 24 hours, I recently was there, as of two hours ago, I was in Home Depot buying wood for my sack. And I know what you're thinking. Why not just make a list and go there once? Because, obviously, that doesn't work, right? For me, that doesn't work. As I'm going along with the project, I figure out what I need. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I've been making this wood sukkah. And it's, it's, it's nice... I'm trying to like, tread carefully here because it's a sukkah. But it's a lot of... Okay, every year, I basically have to build it from scratch. I have the wood already and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But it's like every year, it's like building it from scratch, which might be fine if I were into that sort of thing. But it's a little bit, it's a little bit tedious. So this year, I bought one of these um, snap sukkahs. Like a snap sukkah? You guys want to know what a snap sukkah is? Anybody? Okay, it's made of a you know snaps like on clothing no relation no no relation it's not at all connected no that was that was a false lead right there it's a it's made of the metal poles i guess with like little uh, who knows i can't even describe it Ye- yeah no no it's not the no it's not the pop up it's like metal things and you just knock it in with like a a mallet a rubber mallet right Rub- it's e- it's relatively easier to make Easier to make. We still had like 10 people make it with my kids and other people. It was still like a multi-person job over multiple hours, but it was much easier. Why am I telling you this? Because the holiday of Sukkot is coming up and there are so many beautiful observances. See, now we just transitioned into class mode. I don't know if you guys pick up on that. So in the holiday of Sukkot, there are multiple things that we do, multiple observances that we do to celebrate the holiday. Tonight, we're going to focus on the three big features of Sukkot, the three big ideas. And we're going to see how they serve as a paradigm for our spiritual relationship and really also our human relationships. And we'll also see how this, re- this um, sheds light on the notion of Jewish continuity. How are we still here today after all these years? Because I'll tell you, there have been poets, Jewish poets, that have beautifully expressed the idea. Asukala. There's a, a Yiddish, a Yiddish poem or song called Asukala. That's all I know. All I know is the title. I'm, I can't go any, anything beyond that. But I do know that the content of the poem is something about how you have a sukkah. That is, can you imagine back in the day? Oh, I have so many stories to tell you. Oh, okay. We're gonna get to in my head. I'm just organizing my thoughts. Give me a moment. Okay, so let's, let's get back to my point, and then I'm going to tell you what I just thought of. So a sukkah. imagine an old sukkah in the old country. Imagine an old sukkah in the old country with, um, you know, that's kind of falling down, put together from whatever scraps of wood they could come up with. There was no Home Depot. There was, right, you just pulled together whatever you could to put up a sukkah. And, um, and it's like falling down. And it's like barely holding up in the in the wind and the rain and the snow, whatever it was in the old country in Russia. And but it's still standing. Barely, but it's still standing. And the poem goes, like the, the the point is that's kind of our history, right? We've been through a lot. Lots of winds and lots of lots of climate, you know, stuff happening around. And we're still standing. You know, we're still here. So there's a connection between the Sukkah, or the holiday of Sukkot, and Jewish continuity, and we're going to speak about that as a theme tonight. I've got to tell you a story that came to mind. The story goes, there was once a chassid. A in the old country who was always very happy. This guy was always so happy, even though he didn't have much. He was poor, didn't have a lot of stuff, but he was always very happy. Why? Because that's what a chassid is. A chassid is happy you got to be happy. You've got to serve God with joy, so you're happy. I mean, you think of a picture of chassidim, what do you think of? Like some sort of chassidic dance. There's always like a hand involved with the dance. The feet, I'm not going to get up and demonstrate, nonetheless. All right. So, happy. And he had a neighbor, this guy had a neighbor, who was not a chassid and not so happy. And every sukkot, every sukkot. See, when they were in their homes, what happens in the home is in the home. But every sukkot, everyone's outside. And when you're outside, you can hear what's going on with your neighbor. Are you with me so far? So every sukkot, he would be outside with his family for his meal, the first night of sukkot. And the chassid and his family were outside. And he would hear so much singing, so much happiness, and it drove him crazy. Why is this guy so happy? What's he so happy about? Are you with me on this so far? Yes, you're with me on the story. It actually bothered him that this guy is so happy. This guy had nothing, the, the neighbor. And every year, he would scrape together, borrow, you know, people putting up their sukkahs. You have an extra board, an extra piece of wood, an extra bamboo branch, whatever it is, he would borrow, scrape together, put up a sukkah, but he was the happiest guy in town. And it bothered the other neighbor, the wealthy neighbor, who was, like, so irritated. So one year before Sukkot, and this guy was influential, he told all of his neighbors, no one give this guy materials for the sukkah. I can't stand it. He's like, the Scrooge, is that the, is that the yeah, Scrooge, yeah, All right, of Sukkot. So he's like, don't give this guy any any materials for the Sukkah. That's it. We'll see how happy he is. All right, so the Arab Sukkot comes, like the day before Sukkot, and the guy, the neighbor, the chassid guy is, you know, going around neighbor to neighbor asking, and everyone says, sorry, nothing. <laughs> he has no material, nothing. First time ever, he has no materials to build a Sukkah. So what does he do? So he decides uh, he's going to go to the um, Chedric Hadisha. You know what the Chedric Hadisha is? The burial society. Yeah. The Jewish burial society. Why is he going to go there? Because you know, huh? What, why do you go to the burial society? Right? Why?: Well, okay. But what else do they have at the burial society? They have wood. <laughs> they have wood for the caskets. Right? And it's stamped. But the burial uh, society stamp on it on the wood. So he figures there's no time to ask permission. But anyway, it's like, who's di- how many people are dying over Sukkot? Like, what's, like, uh, what's, what's the... There's a lot of wood, and the like odds are... Sukkah. Huh? It's like a Dracula Sukkot. Well, hold on one second. I don't know, right? So he figures, look, how many people are going to die over Sukkot over the holiday? It's like the odds are I'm I'm fine with with borrowing this wood without asking permission. So let me take the wood and after Sukkot, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll take it apart and put it back in. And none will be the wiser. That's it. So he, so like a few hours before the holiday, he schleps his wood, puts it up. Anyway, the guy next door goes out to his sukkah the evening. And he's having his meal, and he's expecting to hear nothing from the guy next door or a few doors down, whatever it is. And lo and behold, singing again. And he's like, I can't believe it. I've been foiled. My plans have been foiled. He runs next door. He says, he sees a sukkah. And by the way, this sukkah, now he got good wood. Are you with me? He got good wood. Every year okay. he borrows, now he's got good wood. He's got the be- most beautiful sukkah ever. He's like, I ca- how, does this, how is this possible? I can't believe it. I told everybody not to give you the sukkah. Da-da-da. So now the chassid realized who was behind it. Okay. So he says to him, like this He says, Look, look at the sukkah. He tells the neighbor. You see, it's uh, from the, from the burial society. He's like, Let me tell you what happened. It was the eve of Sukkot, earlier today, and I saw the angel of death walking down the street. And I said, Where are you going? He said, to your neighbor's house, that's you. I said, oi, what's going on? He's like, I'm, I'm here to collect him. So I said to the angel of death, I said, you don't need to take him. He's dead anyway. Well, you need to, he's, he, you ever hear his sukkot? It's so dead in the sukkah. You need to take him before sukkot. He's not alive anyway. So anyway, so with this, the guy got the message and he realized Judaism is no fun when there's no fun in Judaism, right? You got to have joy. And with this, he took the hint and the neighbor had influence on the neighbor and they all lived happily ever after. That's the story. That's a Hasidic story. The point is that we have beautiful mitzvot on Sukkot, including the idea of joy, including the sukkah and the lulav and the etrog, all three elements, the joy, the lulav and the sukkah, we will speak about tonight. Those are the three mitzvot that we will focus on. But before we do that, let's talk about one other theme, and that is Jewish continuity, and we're gonna blend everything together. By the end of the class, hopefully everything will come together in a beautifully woven, with a bow package. Let's talk about, when I mention bow, Donna, I expect bow to come bounding down the lane, but, all right, you'll let me know. Um, Okay, now, bow is Donna's cat, in case you're wondering, but it's B, E, A. U X. Did I get that right? No X. No X. No X. No X. Huh? No X.
1: That would mean to be
0: several bows. That's what that's what Sandrine just said. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. Well, I was thinking the plural. All right. You guys can be all singular on me. That's fine. Okay. That was good. All right. So here we go. Let's talk about Jewish continuity. And I want to share with you an incredible letter of of the Rebbe about Jewish continuity. Because you know, you should know, if you hang out in circles that are, that are concerned about, you know, Jewish community and Jewish continuity, there's always the question about how, how is Jewish continuity, you know, how, does, how do we keep this thing called Judaism going? But, you know, the big word, the big buzzword today nowadays is science, right? You got to follow the science. You got to follow the evidence. We can speculate, but you got to look at the facts. Ready for this? If you look at 3,300 or 3,800 years of Jewish history, depending if you count from Abraham or from Sinai, so 3,300 or 3,800 years of Jewish history. Actually, let's go 3,300. You'll see why. So there's one constant that has kept our people around. It hasn't been location, because we've been in different locations. It hasn't been language, because we've spoken different languages. It hasn't been um, articles of clothing, because we've worn different styles of clothing. It hasn't been food, because we've, we've eaten different foods. So if you're trying to see, how is it that, you know, like, if an experiment keeps on turning out the same way again and again, and you keep on changing different factors, but the results are the same, so you look for the one constant that hasn't changed. Are you with me on this, scientific method? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Perfect. So what's the one constant in, in Jewish life and experience that hasn't changed one iota in the last 3,300 years? I, it's not the language. Torah. Okay. Well, hold on. The answer is Torah, but I wanted to do it again. I would, <laughs> I just, I would feel better just going through the, the, the process again. So it's not the language. Language has changed. It's not the clothing. That's changed. It's not the food. That's changed. It's not the culture. It's not the location. It's not the geography. Everything changed. There have been Jews in the Far East. There have been Jews in Africa. Jews in Asia. Jews in in South America. Jews in Australia. Jews in the fifteen hundred. Jews in the nine hundred. Jews before the Common Era. It's um, what's the, what's the what's the one what's the one constant? I the, thought language was one of the constants. But it's not. I mean, I hear it, it, you. You could argue that, but it's but it, it but it's it's re- it really hasn't been. I mean, for the most part, American Jewry is buzzing along, is humming along. And you know how well does American Jewry how how familiar is American Jewry with, with Hebrew? And there have been times when Yiddish was the spoken language, yeah. or right? And, and you have, you know, yeah. Ladino, You have different languages, and, and it hasn't always been the same. So there's a, there's a remarkable letter. We're going to start with this letter. A remarkable letter penned by the Rebbe articulating this idea and let's read it. You've got to follow the signs. It's so interesting. The letter dates from 1973. And it's really about explaining to someone who's an academic how scientifically we see the power of Torah. For Jewish continuity. So let me just circle back for a quick second before we get into the letter. People come up with all theories. Like, how is Jewish continuity going to work? Like, how do we keep Judaism alive in 2021? How are we going to make it relevant to the next generation? Let's come up with this new idea. It's like, or, crazy thought, let's look at what's worked. Are you with me on this? You understand what I'm saying? It's like you you get a bunch of Jews together in a room and you brainstorm about Jewish continuity, and everyone comes up with different this initiative and that initiative and that initiative. And sometimes there's one word that's not mentioned. God forbid to talk about Torah or mitzvot, because oh that stuff. No, no, we're talking about Jewish continuity. And you're thinking, let's slow this down. There's literally been one constant: follow the science. Follow the science. I'm going to open up and share my screen. Open up my screen. That would be, require much more effort than I want to put in right now. Um, here we go. Okay, let's do this. This is going to be text number two. Actually, before we do text two, let's do text one, just because it sounds like it should go first. Text one is from Rabbi Sajjagon, from the 9th and 10th centuries. You see his bio there on the side. I'm going to read this quickly, text one. He says, it is only the Torah that makes us a nation. That is a, uh, the preamble to the, to the letter that I've been, I've been referencing. Text two, I'm going to read this. The Rebbe writes in this letter from 1973 the following. And I feel like I want to make this a little larger, so it's nice and big. I am impelled to add yet another essential point. This is part of a longer letter, but here's the point that we're focusing on. The survival of our Jewish people. And the impact that this matter has upon every Jewish individual is not something that has as yet to be investigated and experimented with. The Jewish people is one of the oldest in the world. And, it's, and in its long history as a nation, it has gone through various conditions and circumstances, mostly very unfavorable, as mentioned above, again, earlier in the letter. If one wishes to know the secret of Jewish survival under circumstances that have obliterated larger and stronger nations... One has but to apply the same scientific method as in other cases. It's like such a checkmate move over here. It's unbelievable. Again, the Rebbe is saying, we have a nation, Jewish people, 3,300 years old. Nation after nation after nation has fallen. Powerful, mighty nations. And yet, this humble, tiny, relatively tiny Jewish nation hums along unbroken, unvanquished, Seemingly invincible, what is the secret to the survival? Let's look at the science. The Rebbe explains the scientific method. In other words, it is necessary, if we want to know the secret to survival, Jewish survival, to find the common factor or factors in all the various periods of Jewish history, which would then have to be taken as the base of Jewish survival. In other words, in other words what factors have there been consistently that have, that have enabled Jewish survival? Let's continue. Should two or three different factors be found, there would be a question of whether all of them were indispensable to survival, or perhaps only one or two of them would also have been sufficient. But if only one common factor is found, man, the Rebbe really brings this, like explains this well. But if only one common factor is found, then there can be no doubt that this is the only basis of the survival. This as mentioned above is the scientific approach and is not a matter of belief or faith. The Rebbe is very clear, speaking academically. And the Rebbe, by the way, had degrees from the University of Berlin and Sorbonne. The Rebbe said, this is the, the scientific method. This is not faith or belief. I believe about... This is suspend belief for a second, follow the science. Moreover, as in all fields of science, it does not matter whether one does or does not understand the scientific findings. Indeed, in most exact sciences, the facts and actual phenomenon are first ascertained, and then a scientific explanation is sought. In other words, just because we don't like, I'm adding like, reverend didn't say that. I'm, I'm gonna add it. I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say, just because we don't like the, the conclusion, or because we don't understand, as the Rebbe said, the conclusion doesn't make it unscientific. Follow the science. Now going back, here we go. Now going back to the long history of our Jewish people over a a period of some 3,500 years, it will be seen that there has been only one factor that has preserved Jewish identity and survival throughout the various periods of our history. This factor was not language, nor country, nor anything else which is often associated with nationhood and nationalism. For in all of these things, there have been radical changes from one period to another, as anybody familiar with Jewish history knows. The single factor, and I emphasize, the one and only factor which has preserved our Jewish people throughout the ages under all kinds of circumstances has been the fulfillment of the mitzvot in day-to-day life, such as the observance of Shabbat, the putting on of tefillin, and the Torah education of our children. So Torah is, is positioned as one of the mitzvot. Of course, it's like, you know, you can't do a mitzvot without knowing. Fine, but it's, the Torah is there as p- part of one of the day-to-day observances of, of Judaism. These and all other mitzvot are, are, are already embedded in the Torah and have been observed by Jews since the Torah was given on Mount Sinai. And they've been observed in the same way throughout the ages without change. A further proof that this is the secret of Jewish survival, if further proof is necessary, is the fact that there have always been deviationists. The Torah relates that immediately after the golden calf, sorry, immediately after Freudian slip, after the Torah was given at Sinai, there were worship, the worshipers of the golden calf. Similarly, throughout the period of the judges, prophets, and kings, as well as the post-biblical period of the second temple, and later, and later there were deviationists. These deviationists attempted to steer another course away from traditional Judaism but they could never take root within the Jewish people. Either these deviationists eventually realized their mistake and returned to the fold of observance of Torah and mitzvot, or they were completely assimilated among the nations of the world without having anything further to do with the Jewish people, least of all with Jewish survival. This is the end of the excerpt of this letter. I don't know of a more powerful letter stating a more powerful truth than this. I I, I mean, I, I I, I don't know that it exists as clear and scientific. If you want to look at Jewish, Jewish survival and you want to know what is the one factor that has kept us going, everything else has changed. The one thing that has not changed is Torah and mitzvot. In other words, it's kind of crazy when you say it like this, Judaism. Judaism is the one thing that keeps Judaism alive. I know it sounds like super, I don't know what the word is, super um, redundant, redundant. Yeah, exactly. It's like, isn't that what we're saying? But yeah, but you go you go to it. I, I'm sure I don't have to tell you this. Go to a meeting in any big city, with with uh, with, with 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 leaders of, of Judaism, yeah. And they get together and they talk about Jewish continuity. And campaigns ahinaher, and money ahinaher, and the question is, is is the mitzvah on that list? Is Judaism on that list? And if not, let's get it on the list, right? Yes, we can be creative about things, sure, no problem with being creative, but let's get Judaism on the list here. Gotta get Judaism on the list. That's the key to Jewish survival. Shocker, Judaism is the key to Jewish survival. It's so so simple when you think about it. Scientific, it's simple. And the Rebbe said something very powerful there at the end. A proof that, 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 that that's the key is when you remove that key, it fails if you pull out if you if you if you if you extract that piece right if you extract those molecules from the experiment it fails every single time take out judaism it doesn't go it doesn't go there's no continuity there either either their kids or the grandkids come back right either they come back or or that's it they get lost Unfortunately, so what's the point? The point is that Jewish survival requires a connection to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism. And Sukkot teaches us how we can connect to Judaism on three levels. That's the connection. So now let's talk. Let's let's go back to the holiday of Sukkot. Hold on, I saw in the in the the, I saw in the uh, um, chat is writing about the Pew study. There are those that are um, not identified with religion, but those. But there's a rebound. Rise of Chabad, yeah. Okay? By the way, this oh, is... is yeah, yeah. Exactly a- and by the way, you should know, the rebel was not talking about Chabad specifically. The rebel was talking about Judaism, which can exist in, in any and every denomination. It's not about a denomination per se, it's about the focus. You could have a reform, um, c- a congregation, that is very much pushing. To, that's very much you know um, uh, 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 advocating and 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 um, celebrating Torah mitzvot. And you could have, conversely, etc. So it's not necessarily about an affiliation per se, as much as it is about a focus. Focus. What's the focus? On? The folk. The the one thing that's kept us grounded. It's kept us alive. Kept us. Jewish is Judaism. So let's not forget, let's not forget the Judaism in, 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 in Jewish survival. Again, it seems very basic, but it's, it's, it's important to mention. And Sukkot teaches us three elements of our connection to Judaism. So now let's go back to the three mitzvot that I mentioned um, on Sukkot. And they are, I'm going to tell them to you outside, and then we're going to do them inside. Number one, joy. Number two, the idea of the lulav and the etrog, like the four kinds of the plants. And the third mitzvah is the actual sukkah. So let's, let's pull them up. We're going to do some readings and jump right in. Okay, here we go. Text number three. Text number three. This is from Deuteronomy. We had this in the Torah portion of Re, which is we read a few weeks ago in synagogues around the world. I'm going to read this, text three. And you shall rejoice in your festival. You shall rejoice in your festival. And by the way, that capital F for festival is a reference to Sukkot. Festival is Sukkot. It doesn't mean Passover. It doesn't mean Shavuot. This is specifically Sukkot. Vesamachta b'chag In fact, when, when the Talmud talks about Chag, the festival, it's a reference to Sukkot. So it says, specifically by Sukkot, you shall rejoice in your festival, you and your son and your daughter and your manservant and your maidservant and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are within your cities. In other words, it's a celebration for everybody. Seven days you shall celebrate the festival to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord shall choose because the Lord your God will bless you in all your, pro- uh, in all your produce and in all the work of your hands. And you will only be happy. So that is the mention of, of joy regarding the mitzvah of Sukkot. Now, what is the practical contours of this mitzvah? Does it mean I have to, I have to walk around plastered uh, with a smile, or with a smile plastered on my face for, for seven days, eight days, nine days? In the diaspora, we have a few extra days. So is that, is that what it is? Just smiling or feeling joy in my heart? What does it mean? So as we'll see in text four, Rambam gives us parameters. Every mitzvah Every mitzvah has, has to be actionable. So if we say that you have to be happy on Sukkot, well, what are my action items? What's the practical um, elements that I need to, uh, to, to, to check off here? So text four is Rambam, and Maimonides provides it. Um, Joy, will you please read this one? Dr. Maxi? please read text number four from Maimonides. On these days, a person is obligated to be happy and in good spirits. He, his children, his wife, the members of his household and all those who depend on him as the verse states and you shall rejoice in your festival the rejoicing mentioned in the verse refers to sacrificing peace offerings nevertheless included in this charge to rejoice is that he his children and the members of his household should rejoice each one in the manner appropriate for him but as implied Children should be given roasted seeds, nuts, and sweets. For women, one should buy attractive clothes and jewelry according to one's financial capacity. Men should eat meat and drink wine. There you go. Listen, Maimonides is not trying to stereotype. Nonetheless, he's saying, you know, look, the point is to be joyous. So how do you, how do you rejoice? So kids should have things that make them happy. Right, women... Them, they're happy. Men, what makes them happy? Everyone should have what makes them happy. And if it's different, then, then, then go about whatever makes you happy. But the point is, when we talk about simcha, there's a mitzvah to be, to be means in a state of happiness, on the chag, on, 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 on sukkot. What does that mean? I should smile all day. Sure, but it also means, if it, you know, to, to augment the joy with some Physical things that that, that make us that, that get us in a good mood, right? So that's that's the um, that's the idea. Um, good. So that's mitzvah number one. Mitzvah number one of the three is the idea of joy. Let's take a, let's take a look at mitzvah number two. Mitzvah number two is going to be the four kinds. What are the four kinds? The four different ch- types of plants. So Donna Herbert, please read text number five from VaYikra from Leviticus. Okay. And you should take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the Hadar tree, date palm fronds, a branch of a braided tree, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven day periods. So again, the rejoicing, but this time the focus is not so much on the rejoicing, it's on this other mitzvah that we have now, which is the idea of taking four types of plants. There's the fruit of the Hadar tree, that's the esrog, there's the date palm fronds, which we call the lulav. The branch of a braided tree, which is the hadas, or hadasim. And the willows of the brook are the aravot. So we have the esrog, lulav, hadasim, and aravot. Those are the four branches, the four I don't know, branches, the four um, kinds of plants of, of, of stuff, botanical, you know, you c- celebration stuff. And, um, and that is what we use in the mitzvah. Of su- to celebrate uh, um, on Sukkot. The third element, so we have the mitzvah of joy, the mitzvah of the four kinds, and the final one is actually making the sukkah um, or, or living in a sukkah. Let's do this one. Fred, if you don't mind, Fred, jump in on text number six. For a seven-day period, you shall live in booths. Every resident among the Israelites shall live in, live in booths. Perfect. Okay, so we live in booths, we live in huts. Here we live in eight days. Yeah. We have eight days? Yeah, diaspora, instead of the first day, we have two days, and then the rest of the days follow. Exactly. Right. And then Shemini Atzeret is really day, in, in Israel, it's day eight. Here we have day eight and nine. So it's we get we get an extra an extra day or two of celebration. Okay, now I want to show you, guys, a distinction between the mitzvah number two, the four kinds, and mitzvah number three, the sukkah. Okay, so the, the joy, let's leave, let's leave for a moment, and let's talk about the second and third mitzvah that we mentioned, the four kinds and the sukkah. So Halacha says, Jewish law stipulates the following. On the first day of, oh, oh let me clarify something very important. If we, Going back to text 5, it says, you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the Hadarchi. So, hold on. Are we only doing it the first day, or are we doing it all the days of Sukkot? We do the mitzvah all the days of Sukkot. But, that's because, rabbinically, the mitzvah is to do it the other days. Biblically, the mitzvah is only the first day. Are you with me? I guess the rabbis felt if you're paying like a few hundred bucks for an esrog, you might as well get your money's worth. Maybe that's the cheshbon, maybe that's the calculation. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But the rabbi said, don't just use it day one, use it for the rest of the days as well, and that's what we do. Except for Shemini Yetzirah, the last day or two of the holiday, which is almost a separate holiday, but let's leave that aside for right now. On day one, the law is the following. Listen up. Listen carefully. You are obligated To take these four kinds hold them together say a blessing and give it a shake it's a biblical commandment we say a bracha we say a blessing for it but here's the catch the mitzvah is the obligation is that it needs to be yours you need to own it which means which means you can't borrow it for the mitzvah and now you're thinking I borrowed this before. What are you talking about? So let me explain. Jew, and we're going to get to, I'll, I'll show you the sources, but I just want to just speak amongst ourselves before we get to the sources. Halacha says, Jewish law says, that when it comes to this mitzvah of the four kinds, to do the mitzvah, to actually fulfill the mitzvah, you have to own it. What if you don't have one? The one who owns it should give it to you as a gift, making it yours. Are you with me? But the way you do it is, it's a matana, which is a gift, on condition that the other one gifts it back to you. You with me on this? That's the legal stipulation. Okay? Again, the one who does the mitzvah on day one, the other days it's rabbinic anyway, it's fine. But on day one, you need to own it. But what if you don't actually own it? The one, then someone who finds someone who does, and then they should give it to you. They should not give it, lend it to you to use. They need to give it to you, like transfer ownership to you. Like say it's yours, on condition that once you do the mitzvah, you give it back to me as mine. You with me? This is called a matana amanast hakser. So legally, it's again a gift on condition that it be returned or be reversed back the other way as well but every time it's a it's a it's a real transfer of ownership like i can give a gift right i can give you guys the look La- oh that was so awkward i can give you guys the lacroix right and now it's yours now, i don't know if you want to drink it but i'm just saying like i could give it to you right and and now it's yours and then you can give it back to me and now it's mine and that's essentially what happens so the other days of sukkot you can lend someone your lulav etrog hadas and rava but on the first day can't just lend it you have to give it as a gift. With the condition that they gift it back to you, yes, regifting is all the rage on Sukkot. Yes, 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 yes. But, oh, now how do we know this? Well, it's you, you, we read it before, right? I think Donna read it. It says, "You shall take for yourselves." That word, yourselves. For yourselves, Lachem? lekachem, lechem. For you, for yourselves. That means you have to own it. How do I know this? Well, let's look at the sources. Text number seven, I'm going to read this. From the words for yourselves, the rabbis derived, one does not fulfill his, uh, this, uh, his obligation on the first day of the holiday with someone else's lulav. However, if one wishes, they may gift it to another person, and that person may gift it to someone else, or back to the original guy. It happened once that Rabbi Gamliel... And the elders were traveling on a ship. And they had only one lulav set among them. belonging to Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel gifted it to Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua gifted it to Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. And Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah gifted it to Rabbi Akiva. Thus they all fulfilled their obligation. So that the Sifra, which is a... It's, it's one of the Midrashim, but it's not about... It's not, like, it's not the homiletical stories. It's more the Halachic um, legal Midrash. says that the way that the halakha is the law is that on the first day of sukkot you have to own a lulav and Esra to fulfill the mitzvah. What do you do if you only have one and you're on a ship? Or what do you what do you do if you go, go come to shul and you don't have one? It's fine. But the one who has it can't just give it to you to borrow. They have to give it to you as a gift on condition that you give it back. And so that's what happened Rabbi Sh- Rabbi Gamaliel gave it to this rabbi, rabbi gave it to the other rabbi and it all went all around. Okay. So what do you Oh, you just say, Matanam Nasta You just say, well, yeah, if you can rattle off those words quickly, say, here's a gift on condition that you give it back to me. That you gift it back to me. Yeah. You know, feel. Or you make them sign a contract. You know, fill out a waiver, that sort of thing. No big deal. I'm kidding about that, right? Don't sign anything on the holiday. Just do a verbal. That's fine. Now, that's, that's the way, that's the, insofar as the Lulav love goes. However, now here's where things get tricky. Everything, that, everything we've said thus far is, should be pretty straightforward. We're going to get a little, a little uh, tricky now. Okay, here's where it gets tricky. What about a sukkah? Do you have to own your own... Oops, before I share. Do you have to own your own sukkah? Or can you go into someone else's sukkah? Aha! Now we're asking the good questions. Right, when it comes to the lulav and the esrog, right, those... I'm just calling it lulav, but it means the whole, the whole shebang. When it comes to that stuff, you need to own it. And if you don't own it, the other one has to give it to you, and then you give it back. Well, what about a sukkah? When you walk into someone else's house on Sukkot, oh, you don't have a Sukkot. You go to someone else's Sukkot. Do they have to gift you the sukkah? Right? It's your Sukkot now. Right? <laughs> it's your Sukkot. Now you take it down. I mean like, right? <laughs> Which I may use. Come after the holiday. We'll see how that works out. Find some unsuspecting. No, I'm kidding. All right. So how does, <laughs> just joking. How does this work with the sukkah? Let's take a look-see at the sources. Right? We're not going to um, speculate. Let's look at the source. In the Torah, it says, text 8, it says, you, you shall make for yourself the festival of Sukkot for seven days when you gather in the produce from your threshing floor in the vat. Okay, sure. But it says, similar word to what we had before, for yourself. Remember we had for yourself before and we said it has to be yours? So does the sukkah need to be yours? Text number 9 provides the answer. Here we go. The rabbis say, Although they said that a person does not fulfill his obligation on the first day of the festival with someone else's lulav, one does fulfill their obligation with another person's sukkah. In other words, by sukkah it's different. You need to own your your lulav, or at least be given to it, but you don't need to own your sukkah, or the sukkah. As the verse states, because there's another verse, That teaches us every resident among the Israelites shall live in booths. This teaches us that all of the Jewish people are fit to reside in one sukkah. In other words, let me explain. I'm just throwing some commentary so that this makes sense. There's a verse that says, that the Jewish people could fit into one sukkah. Theoretically, you can make a sukkah. There's no limit to how wide and, and long you can make a sukkah. Theoretically, you can make a sukkah that spans the globe. Okay, you may have to swim to get to some places of the sukkah, but theoretically, you can cover the... the there's, no, there's no limit to how big you can go with the sukkah. You can't go super... You can't go high, you know, forever, but as far as broad, wide, and long, you can go as long as the eye can see, which means, theoretically, the whole Jewish people could fit into one sukkah, theoretically. Now, what happens if that were the case? Well, then, even if you wanted to divide ownership amongst everybody, everyone would own less than a penny of the sukkah, which means that no one really owned it. Are you with me? If we would divide the cost of the sukkah amongst 600,000 people or 3 million people or 15 million people? All right. We don't have to do the math. You just, you know, stay with me on this. Right? The $1,000 sukkah, when you divide it into fifty million people, is probably not a penny. So, right? We can assume. So here's the deal. That means that you don't have to own your sukkah to be in a sukkah if everyone's in the same sukkah. So, but what about, the, what about the word for yourself, which we said before with regards to the lulah means that you have to own it. So, and what do the rabbis derive from the term for yourself? The Talmud says they derive that one does not fulfill his obligation with a stolen sukkah. In other words, if you stole the sukkah, yeah, I'm just picturing it. Whoa, that guy has a sukkah on his back. I don't know how you're going to steal a sukkah, but if you stole a sukkah, ah, now we can ask a question on the story. The guy who stole the boards from the, uh, from the cemetery. And Ushbizin, right, the movie Ushbizin. All right, look, we'll have to ask questions on the story in the, in, the, uh, in the post-class party situation room or whatever, situation room, it's something else, whatever. But for right now, yeah, the Talmud tells us you cannot use a stolen sukkah. That's what it means from your, for yourself. It has to be yours, or it has to be legal, it can't be, can't be illegal. However, a borrowed sukkah is permitted as the verse states, every resident, everyone could stay, um, be in the same sukkah. So here we go. My point is, very simply, we have a distinction between the mitzvah, the parameters of the lulav mitzvah, and the parameters of the sukkah mitzvah. And they're both the festival of sukkot-related mitzvah. But with one, you have to own it. With the other, you can borrow it. And the question is, not borrow it, but like, you know, use someone else's sukkah, and it's not a problem. Why is there a distinction? The Hebrew terminology is pretty much the same. It's pretty, it's pretty similar. So then why is there a difference between the lulav and the sukkah. One you have to own, and the other one you don't have to own. Why is there a difference there? We're going to explain this from a deep place of Torah thought. Okay? So let's jump in. And now we're going to get to the mystical stuff. Now it gets a little mystical. There are three elements within our relationship with the divine. Three points of our spiritual relationship. Element number one, is Torah and mitzvot. We study Torah. We do a mitzvah. We're connected. That's one mitzvah. We've talked about this you know, countless times. The word mitzvah, typically, we think means commandment. In Aramaic, means connection. So every mitzvah is like, what does that mean? Plugging something in. I think that's. I think that's what I was going for. Every mitzvah is a connection point between us and God. Beautiful. What happens when we when we, when we mess up? What happens when we botch? Botch. Botch a mitzvah, or don't do a mitzvah, or neglect a mitzvah, or do the opposite of a mitzvah. So now what What happens? It's a disconnection. The good news is, there is the possibility for teshuvah. What is teshuvah? Teshuvah means, I feel sorry for what I've done, and I can fix it. That's layer two of the relationship. That means there's a commitment that goes beyond the do's and the don'ts, so I can fix what I messed up. Let's now immediately bring it back, bring it down to our relationships, human relationships. So you're in a relationship with someone and there are either written, uh, either spoken rules or unspoken rules about the nature of the relationship and the nature of the love. So that means there's like almost a contract, even if it's not written, but a contract where I'm gonna do this and not do that and you'll do this and you won't do that and we'll treat each other like, you know, like a match, like, like someone that we love. That, those are the, 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 the norms of that relationship, okay? Great. So now the relationship lies in the do's and the don'ts. I did this for you. I didn't do that to you, right? That's the relationship. But what happens if we mess up because, you know, no one's perfect? What happens when we mess up? Can the relationship still survive if the answer is yes? Or when the answer is yes, that reveals another dimension to the relationship. It wasn't just based on the do's and the don'ts or what I did or what I didn't do. The relationship had a deeper commitment that went beyond even what I did or didn't do. And that's why when I messed up on what I was supposed to do or what, or what I was not supposed to do, there's still a way to remain committed and connected. That's the place from where teshuva emanates. Where does Shuva come from? Where does the power to repair what was broken come from? It comes from the idea that we are in a relationship that goes beyond just the do's and the don'ts. There's a commitment that goes beyond. So just to maybe solidify this idea of getting back to human relationships, and then we can apply it to God. So in a human relationship, let's say a couple, uh, two individuals are committed to each other in love. So part of what that means is, not that that gives free license, do whatever you want, because we're committed. So like, you'll take me back, whatever. No, not saying that. But if, if one person does, you know, maybe do something that they shouldn't have done, there's at least theoretically a place, right? I'm not, I'm not weighing in on any specifics here, but there's at least a place to heal the relationship because there's a commitment that's even beyond the specific do's and don'ts. Does any of this make sense? Just checking it. Does this make sense? Yes? Yes? Okay, good. That's level two. So level one is, the, is the, the specific actions or inactions. Level two is the larger commitment. Level three is way beyond that. Level three is not just a commitment of two individuals. Level three is a sense, you know what our our relationship is? It's not just what I do for you. It's not just my commitment to you beyond what I do for you. But it's the fact that we are essentially one. That we have merged together. We have melded together. We're so in step and attuned with each other that the line between where I end and you begin and vice versa is way more blurred than it was when we started this relationship. We've grown together to the point that there's this understanding, this deep understanding. So it's not that I do this, it's, it's not like the, 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 the relationship is hanging on, did I do it or did I not do it? Ooh. And it's not even that it's dependent on the commitment that's beyond that. It's... It's a oneness. It's a familiarity. It's, it's like this oneness. It's, it's, it's just it's getting the other person. It's being one with them. Like an essential connection. Does that make sense? Level three? Yes? Sort of? Okay. So level one connection is, I did this for you. We're connected. Now, if I didn't do it for you, well, then you're not connected. In other words, if the relationship is limited to level one connection, then it's literally based on what I do or what I don't do. So if I do the wrong thing, out. Level two, re- commi- level two of the relationship is, no. You can mess up this, that, or the other. I mean, not that we should, but, but even if, if, if something is, is, is not done perfectly, there's a larger commitment that can make up for it. But level three is not about the things that we do or don't do. It's not about the commitment. It's a oneness that's way beyond all that. With this in mind... With this in mind, I want to show you how the Rebbe describes this in the text. This is going to be I'm going to read this text. Text number 10. There are multiple levels of a Jew's bond with God. Number one is the bond bond forged by performing God's mitzvot, obeying all of God's precepts. Number two, is the bond between the Jew and God that runs deeper than the performance of the mitzvot. This inner bond is demonstrated by the fact that when one has transgressed God's command, it troubles him, prompting him to do tshuva. Inasmuch as tshuva comes from a deeper place than the connection forged by mitzvot, tshuva can remove the stain of sin that had weakened the manifest connection. Nevertheless, this deeper connection is also limited, defined by tshuva. You still have to do tshuva to get the relationship back. So you still have to do something to get it back. Number three is deeper than number two. And, of course, number one. And that is the inherent bond between the soul's core and God's core. This bond is entirely unlimited and undefined and is too deep to be expressed by any kind of action, not even the act of teshuva. This bond cannot be achieved by any set of actions or regimen of divine service because any human action, lofty as it may be, is ultimately finite. Rather, this bond exists naturally in every Jew, in the core of the soul, which is truly a part of God on high. Even now, when it resides in the body, in other words, when the soul is in the body, the soul is enmeshed and glued to you It's a quote from a verse. And one with your oneness, the soul is always one with God. It's kind of like DNA. So level one is a manufactured relationship that's based on performance. Level two is a a connection that's based on commitment that says, you know what, I'm committed to you even though I messed up, you messed up. All right, we're going to figure out a way to fix this. That's the commitment. Level three is not about commitment. It's about essence. Because with level two, it's still two different parties that are committing to each other to, you know, work things through. That's that's still, you have to do tshuva to fix it. Level three is, we reach a deeper place or we we open up a deeper place within ourselves that was always plugged in with God, always connected essentially. These three components are reflected in Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. And let me explain what I just said. Each of those three holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, has all three dimensions. Rosh Hashanah. Level one, blowing the shofar. It's a mitzvah that we do, blowing the shofar. Level two, it's the first of the 10 days of repentance, tshuva. Level three, right, so you have the mitzvah of the day, you have the tshuva of the day. Are you guys with me so far? Level one is the mitzvah, level two is tshuva, level three is the essence, right? There's mitzvah. There's, there's the gift that I give. There's the commitment that I... There's, there's the good deed that I do. There's the commitment that I have. And then there's the essential connection that's beyond even commitment. Because commitment implies two different parties. The essential connection is oneness. Rosh Hashanah is all three dimensions. There's the mitzvahs that we do, like blowing the shofar. There's the commitment that we express, because it's the first of the ten days of tshuva. And then there's the oneness... That we open up when we coronate God as king and we recognize that we're partners with God in this grand, this grand plan called life and existence and creation. And we're one with God in this, in, this, uh, in, in this project. That's Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur also has all three levels. Yom Kippur has a mitzvah that we do or don't do, which is fasting. We don't eat or drink. So that's the mitzvah level. That's level one. Level two is it's the last of the 10 days of tshuva. So that's the commitment. And level three is the idea that on Yom Kippur we go beyond... The do's and don'ts, and we open up our oneness. I'm going to write something in the, in the chat. If you have the ability to check out the chat, then take a look at this. I usually mention this every year, right? It's the day of atonement, but divide atonement into three segments, and it's at one Yeah, that's the word atonement, at one right? Atonement Typically means forgiveness. I'm sorry, I messed up. I still love you. Do you still love me? Blah, blah, blah. That's level two. Level three is at-one-ment. Level three is not atonement, which is shuva. It's at-one-ment. We realize that we're, we're one with God the whole time. And that comes out. That, that, that opens up on Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur has all three levels. The midst of the day, which is fasting. It's got the tshuva element, the atonement. And it has the at-one-ment, which is level three. The same thing is true on Sukkot. And wouldn't you know it? It's expressed in the three mitzvot that we talked about. Level one is the joy. Level one is the joy. And we talked about the joy is defined, right? Buy the kids some sweets, you know, the Rebbitzin some jewelry and clothes. And the, the husband, I said Rebetzin, like the wife, this. And the husband, you know, get a mistake and he'll be happy. But, so it's something that we do for the happiness. So that's level one. It's something that we do, right? Sushi. By the way, Thursday night, sushi in the sukkah right here on the belt line. Join us. I think there's supposed to be good weather. We're going to do sushi rolling with... Uh, sh- I, this segued into a commercial. I don't know how it happened. Let's, let's rewind. Yeah, so level one of Sukkot is what we do. The joy, that's the joy stuff that we do. Okay, level two is the shaking of the lulav and the etrog. Why, why is that connected with level two tshuva? Oh, because how do we know that our tshuva was accepted on Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur, our sages tell us, it's because we go out with a lulav and an etrog, and we shake it triumphantly. And if you're wondering, what are you talking about shaking something triumphantly because you were were, were meritorious in, in judgment? It's not what I'm saying. It's what the Midrash says. To what can this be compared, the Midrash says, to two men who went before the king in judgment, and nobody knew who won the case. The king said, whoever walks out holding a javelin, know that he is the winner. Similarly, the Jewish people are judged in Yom Kippur, and nobody knows who won the case, us or Satan. Take, so God says, take your lulavim in your hands, so that everyone will know that you are in in judgment. You see a Jew walking around with a long case. You ever see the, the long lulav cases? It looks like, I don't even want to say it. It looks like, uh, you know, uh, Chicago, the mob. I, I, it looks like Al Capone would have used one of those guys. You ever see these cases, these big lulav cases, the hard cases? It's unbelievable. Green cases, it's like shoulder-mounted cases. You have the straps with the whole thing. It's like walking to shul. I got my, my etro, I got the them, You crack that off, you throw it. You pull out the lulav case, you're good to go. Sorry. Yes? You guys with me? All right. <laughs> all right. Good. So that represents the idea of tshuva. Because how do we know that the tshuva was neskabel? Sorry for all the Hebrew. How do we know that our repentance was accepted? It's because we go out with it with the lulav and the Etrog. So again, let's go step one, step two. Step one is the joy. You do the stuff, that brings the joy. Level two is the tshuva, is the commitment. We're so committed. We're even walking down the street with some branches. Now, we're so committed, right? We're so, the commitment is there. We've been accepted even after what we've done this past year. And, and as a sign of victory, we're going to shake some plants. It's a thing. Level three is the sukkah. What's the level three sukkah? What does that even mean, level three sukkah? Level three sukkah is when we sit together in the same sukkah. And I asked before, why don't you need to own the sukkah? You need to own your lulav. Why not your sukkah? And I hope you got the answer by now. Because we all own the same sukkah. Sounds a little communist, but work with me here. We all own the sukkah because it's level three connection. yes. So the oneness is there. It's not me or you. It's not me or you with God. It's not me or you with the other. When it comes to the Lulav, it's still level two. There's a commitment, but there's me and there's you. And you had to do something. You had to apologize. I wasn't going to say I forgive you until you had to go apologize. So there's still a distance, even though it's not like cut and dry, like, okay, you messed up, you're out. That's level one. This is still, I, there's still room to accept you back, but you still had to do something because there's still a distance, which means when it comes to the lulav, if you want the lulav, you have, I have to give it to you as a gift, because there's still me, there's still you, there's still distance there. But the sukkah is level three. The sukkah level three means that me and God are one. And if I'm one with God, and oh, spoiler alert, and you're one with God, A equals B, and C equals B, heyo, you know what A and C that happens? A equals C yeah or should we just do the normal A equals b, b equals C so a equals C? I think that's what I just said. Anyway, either way, it's all the same so if I'm one with God, you're one with God that me and you are one. not just we can we can be committed to each other, but we're one, which means misuka wait Mika how did you say it? how do you say that my Mi ah, someone ah, someone unmute and help me out struggling rabbi, help me out here <laughs> Mikasa sukasa. Yeah. Mikasa es sukasa. All right. So that, the same thing, but put in sukkah. Mi sukkah, sisa sukkah. Su- That's su- 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 so many sukkahs in that quote. They didn't even realize they were talking about sukkah. The whole thing is predicated on the word sukkah. Right? So here's the point. With sukkah, and, and how does it express itself in the mitzvah itself? Because uh, sukkah is the only mitzvah that we have that anything that you do in it is a mitzvah. Okay, legal. Although, I guess if you're going to do it in your house, do it in the sukkah, so whatever. But the point is like this. What we do in the sukkah is a mitzvah by virtue of the fact that it's a sukkah. Every mitzvah typically affects one part of the body. You have to fill in the arm, you let your back hands with the hand, you get stuck with the hand, you, whatever. Every, every mitzvah has a certain part of the body that's involved. Small the But with the sukkah, which part of the body? The whole body. The sukkah takes the whole body in. It's every experience that we do, eating, schmoozing, reading the paper. What you do it in the sukkah, it's a mitzvah now. And it's the only mitzvah of sukkot that spans the entire seven, eight days from beginning to end. The lulav and etrog you only do during the day. But this you do the whole time. So what's the point? The point is, it is... Mark writes, what happens in the sukkah stays in the sukkah. Excellent. That's what I was trying to say. Exactly. What happens in the sukkah, all right, at least what happens in Mark's sukkah stays in Mark's sukkah. So here's the point. Right, here's the point. That the other, the, the joy of sukkot is what I did. Yeah, you do, do this, there's joy, no, don't do this, I'm not happy. Okay, that's, that's level one. Level two is the etro, the lu of the etro. That's a commitment. That's like the victory of the tshuva of Yom Kippur. We're forgiven. We're excited. God's, God loves us even though we messed up and we have another chance for a new year. Blah, blah, blah. It's great. But there's still a distance. We still had to do something to get that. We still have to show everybody that we were. But level three is this oneness. And it's reflected in the fact that the mitzvah of sukkah is this ambiance of oneness. You walk in. It's a mitzvah. The whole th- it's a seamless mitzvah. The whole thing is a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah that's a composite mitzvah. If you do this, it's a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. The whole thing is a mitzvah. The whole time, the whole body, everything is a mitzvah. And that's why you don't have to own it. Because that other person who owns it, you also own it. Because what differentiates them from you? They're one with God. You're one with God. You're one with them. It's all, it's all seamless. So it turns out that you do have to own your sukkah, but you don't need to own it different than the other guy's sukkah, because that guy's sukkah is your sukkah. So let's bring this back to Jewish continuity. What does it mean to be connected to Judaism? The scientific method, number one. I'm going to frame this in the context of teaching our kids, but I really mean ourselves. But it just feels safer to say kids. We have to teach our kids, level one, what a mitzvah is! This is a mitzvah. Do a mitzvah. It's a point of connection between you and God. Yeah. Tefillin, kosher, Shabbat, Sukkot—beautiful mitzvot. We teach our children the mitzvah. Teach ourselves the mitzvah. Level one. Level two. We have to teach our kids that even if they are to fall and stumble, right? Hashem loves you. Hashem loves you. God loves you. Yeah. You're committed. Hashem's God's committed to you. You're committed to God. Level three, we have to tell our kids, no matter what, no matter what, you're essentially connected with Hashem. There's an essential connection there that cannot be broken. It cannot be enhanced or detracted by what we do or don't do. And even if that sounds like it undoes level one connection, so I don't need to do anything, If you're really one with somebody, you're not going to hurt them. You're not going to do something that violates the expression of the relationship. What you're going to say that I feel so connected with my loved one that I'm not going to do something nice for them. It doesn't make any sense. That's inconsistent. So level three doesn't negate level one or level two. It's the core of what that is. The outer Rebbe in I'm going to end with this point. The Alta Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, in, in Likkute Torah writes. So his insights on the Torah portion and the holidays. That the sukkah is like a divine hug. Why is it like a divine hug? Because the law is that for a sukkah you need two walls. I mean, most sukk- most sukkot that exist have four walls, some three, but really you don't need four walls. All you need are two walls and a little bit of a third. How much of a third? One hand's breadth, Like one, one hand size of a third wall. Now, if you can get that standing, good on you. I guess you have a right angle there. But that's all you need. And the Atta Rabbi says, you know what it's like? It's like the arm. Yeah? From the shoulder you have... I don't know if you guys can see this, right? Oh, I'm doing the robot dance. Okay, whatever. So you have the, the one, two, and three. And you know what it's like? A hug. When you hug someone, let's say a one-hand a one-armed hug, when you hug someone, what happens? You have three segments. 1 2 and a little bit of the third, and that's what hugs. Let's go deeper. Where is the primary hug taking place? Where's the most It's the back of the person that you're hugging. Right? The primary connection is the back. Yes, there's connection. The other sides as well, but the but the primary hold is on the back. Why? Let's talk about children. When a child falls, the best thing that we can the child falls they scrape their knee they cry whatever the best thing, give them a hug. Because it means unconditional love. The difference between the, the face and the back is the face is all the. It's the wisdom. It's the smile. It's the, the face is I don't know a better way to say this. The face is revelation. The back doesn't have that revelation. It's just the back. It's essence. It's not adorned with any accoutrements. It's just the core. You tell a child, I love you unconditionally. Whether you can make whether you can make it across the monkey bars or whether you fell down, I love you the same. It's not about accomplishment. It's not about the face. I don't love you based on the face. I hug your back, and this is the hug of the sukkah that we celebrate on Sukkot. Level three, where God says, "I love you unconditionally," not based on what you did, not based on the tshuva, the repentance that you did, but because you and me were one. When we hug our child, it's not because we accept them even though they fell even though you fall, I still love you? Who would say that to a child? I love you even though you failed. That's like, talk about a backhanded, uh, right? What's the message? I love you. I love you. I cannot love you. You're my child. We're one. And that's Sukkot. That's the deepest love. So this oh. is, what. So what, let, me, let me wrap up and then we'll let everybody go because we're, we're running late. So, so this is level three. And so when we think about Jewish continuity, let's remember all three elements. Number one, let's teach and practice the mitzvot. Number two, if we mess up, let's let's correct. Level three, let's remember that no matter what, us and God are tight. My friends, thank you for joining me. I wish you all a very happy Sukkot, a Chag Sameach, or per our class just now, a hug Sameach, said no one ever. It should be a uh, very blessed holiday. You should feel God's embrace. Feel God's essential love, unconditional love, this holiday. As you spend time in the Sukkah, whether it's yours or yours, don't forget that unconditional love. Feel that love permeating the walls. And enjoy the sushi Thursday night right here on the Beltline, 7 p.m. Join us Live sushi rolling and a, an open sushi bar. All right, my friends. That's it for tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, next week, let me think. Next week is the holiday. So we're not going to be having class. Well, next Sunday is, is also the holiday. So there's no class next week. Not, not Sunday, not Wednesday. We're going to get back to our Wednesday Torah studies the following week. So for the Torah portion of Bereshit, we do not have class. So you're on your own for that one, Wednesday Night Torah Studies. Um, for the following week, so two weeks from this Wednesday, we'll be back on for a new season of Torah Studies. Stay tuned for the email. I have a link to buy the book, and uh, you can join us. Okay, now let's jump in with questions or comments. Mark. What, is there a Torah class tomorrow at noon? There's not live Torah class. For sure not. Um, it's Erev Chag, and possibly, possibly Zoom um, stay tuned for that. Stay tuned for that. I'll, uh, I'll work on, uh, reminding myself to send out a message one way or the other. If I can do it, I'll do it. If not, I won't be able to do it, but either way, hopefully I'll communicate one way or the other. Mark, jump in. Yeah. You know, about the hug. Yeah. It occurs to me that Moses asks God, I want to see your face. Right. And God tells Moses, Can't. I want to see my face and live. Right. Uh, he shows him his back. And so it occurs to me that we likewise can hug God by seeing His back. Right. I like that. I like that. Based on what the Atarab explains with the hug, we could say that it's kind of like... You see... To explain the difference between the back and the face for a second. Because I, it's, like it's, a, it's a big idea in Kabbalah. The face... Although that's like, you know, what we would say is the the, the beautiful part of a person, like you could see the face, whereas the back, the back of the head, like what's the back of the head already? Um, but there's a power in the back over the face, in its essentiality, in in its essence-ness. What do I mean by that? So think about a child that comes home, think about a child that comes home every day from school. With a hundred, you know, with the tests, test uh, every day there's a test or a quiz with hundreds every day. And you say to your child, Oh, I love you, you give me so much nachas. The question is, in that moment, what love do you feel? You feel the love for the child or for the child's accomplishments? In that moment, your child's playing little league, and it's the, the championship game of the little league, what a baseball thing. And your child is up at bat, bottom of the ninth inning or whatever innings they have, six innings, and hits a home run, wins the game. And you're cheering and then you hug your... And, okay, hug, whatever. You say, oh my gosh, it's my kid. You're so excited. What, what is the love that you're feeling in that moment? Is it love for the kid or for the kid's accomplishments? Think about it. The face gets in the way sometimes. Because it means you're not really loving the kid. You're loving the face. I don't mean face literally, I mean it metaphorically. You with me on this? It means you're loving. The more beautiful something is almost, the more that takes it away from the essence state. Which is why Kabbalah says, the author writes in Tanya, that the higher supernal realms that are states and elements of revelation are less essential, less divinely essential than this physical world in which you don't see revelation. I hate to get Kabbalistic at this late hour. To spring some, some tanya on you right now. Just like you know, gorilla tanya here. But it's what it says: the angelic spheres, although that's oh my gosh, it's so beautiful, it's so godly, it's so divine. Yeah, that's not where God's, God's essence is. There's too much light for it to be essence. It's specifically in the space of darkness that you find God's essence. It's specifically in the child that doesn't succeed that you can, as a parent, access the unconditional essential love that you always have. But you can access it in those moments where you don't see the bright lights. Does that make sense? So when it comes to loving God, our relationship with God, when everything goes well, ah, I love you, God. You love God or you love what God just did for you? But when you can't see God's face, cannot, when you cannot see God's face. And you say, I still love you, God. That's an essential expression of, of, of oneness. And that's really what the sages say about when God said to Moses, you can't see my face and live. You won't be able to understand the tragedy. That's the typical um, commentary on it. You want to understand the, 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 the script, you can't understand the script. In retrospect, you can see the back, maybe you'll be able to figure stuff out. But it really connects, because we're talking about challenging moments. It's those challenging moments, those back moments, when you don't see God's face, that you can really summon, access, open up the essential love. That you have. When things are going well, you don't need to call upon the essential love. Again, in a human relationship, everything's going well, everyone's doing stuff for the other, it's all good. We can get into a pattern of these lower level relationships where it's transactional. I did this, you did that, it's all, and it's all good. It's almost like you need a little, sometimes, you need a little disruption to remind, to remind yourself, to remind ourselves the relationship's deeper than just the easy breezy stuff. It's like when the challenge is hit, that's when you have a chance to summon or to access the depth of the relationship. The rule in life is no one digs deeper typically unless they have to. That's the way it is. So if everything's going well, who's digging? Things are challenging, that's when we did. Level two, and then level three. If we could teach our kids this, and again, kids is a, uh, it's a euphemism for self. If we can teach ourselves this, if we can really live with this, the mitzvah, the commitment, and the essential connection, we're locked in for a good year. On our end, right, what happens from above, please, God, we'll be good. But on our end, we're gonna be connected. We do the mitzvah, we feel the commitment, and we feel essentially connected. We know that no matter what, we're one with God. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure. Firing, as always. Thank you, Fred. Fred, back at you. Back (laughs) at you, my friend. (laughs) All right, it's getting late. I'm gonna let everybody go. Have a wonderful evening. And a good yomtiv. We should really have a moed and a simcha, a happy and joyous holiday. And may the joy on this holiday, it says the, one of the Hasidic ideas of joy, I mentioned that before about a, the emphasis in Hasidic life of joy. So it says, simcha parades gader. Simcha knocks down any walls, any boundaries. Indeed, it should be a year of joy and the type of joy that just barrels through any impediments, any obstacles, in the way of all the blessings that we want um, as, a, as a reminder you know if you have if you find yourself with some extra time or not, or not or maybe not make your way over to the website intownjewishacademy.org there's a bunch of stuff that's on the website more stuff is coming is, is going up in the next uh, week or two uh, please God but there's a lot of lot of courses up new courses and, and, and opportunities to connect and events some that I mentioned some that I haven't mentioned take a look and join us. Stay plugged in. It's gonna be a please God a great year. Oh hey Bo. Look at that. We gotta end with a with a uh, a shout out to Bo. All right, with no X. Bo. Not Bo's All right, good. All right, Lila to everyone, Chag Meach. We'll see you guys soon. Take care. Pleasure, pleasure. We'll see you. Lots of love to everybody.